0: Welcome back, imposters, to the very first interview episode of the You're Not Qualified podcast. My name is Courtney Heater. I'm so excited that you're here, and I'm so stoked to share this amazing human story with you. So today we're going to chat with Chris Butler-Stroud. He is the chief executive at Whale and Dolphin Conservation, or WDC, as you will hear it referred to. Chris comes from a non-conservation background, so he did study a science in college, but it was far from conservation, and then he went from the military through advertising as his chosen career, and he has an unusual path into saving incredible species of whales and dolphins. So we will dive deep into many issues plaguing whale and dolphin communities, so if you're interested in that, this is definitely the episode for you. We will also discover some sunken treasures. How did he get into conservation, let alone such a prestigious position as an exec? When did he know this is what he wanted to do? And how did he make it happen with the resources available to him? Really, how is he qualified? And what can we learn from this? Spoiler alert, you have what it takes to do whatever the hell you want. Also, side note, I will say that anybody that knows me knows that this is just such a perfect first guess for this podcast because I am truly, uh, maybe a little bit obsessed with whales and dolphins. I was just so floored by all of the immense knowledge that Chris brought to this conversation and this interview. I'm so excited for everything that you could take away from this, not only with how you can pursue a path in conservation, if that is where you want to go, but really just all of the information that you can take away for trivia facts about whales and dolphins for the next time that you need it. Who knows when you might need it, but there's always a time. So please sit back, enjoy. Definitely, definitely let me know how you like this first episode and I can't wait to hear from you. Okay, let's dive in. So, Chris, thank you so much. Welcome to the "You're Not Qualified" podcast—the very, very first episode. So exciting! I really appreciate it. Um, you have a very interesting path into conservation. It's very inspiring path, and it, it shows that if you want to go there, you should go there. I'm really excited to dive into that. First, I'd like to start with a little bit about your background. I know that you're chief executive at Whale and Dolphin Conservation. And I'd love to hear more about what you do in your everyday life.
1: First of all, thank you very much for the invitation to come on. It is a real pleasure and it's great to be in a position and, and to support you and reaching out to other people to encourage them in terms of the opportunities there are in conservation. On a day to day basis, my, my job really is to sit at the bottom of the pyramid and support all my very talented colleagues. And my strategy has always been hire people much more intelligent and better than I am at the different functions and enable them really to reach their potential and hopefully develop further and and go on. So I I could be meeting with members of the UK parliament to brief them on climate change and whales and dolphins and how the, the, the two interact negatively in terms of the crisis affecting whales and dolphins, but then what role whales and dolphins play in helping us mitigate uh, climate change. I'm taking part in a broadcast for a new piece of legislation here in the UK, which is trying to link biodiversity and the climate together and making sure we're tackling both and not sacrificing one for the other. Then working on a team on a fundraising proposal out to a foundation, to try and bring the, the necessary work support that we require. I'll be working with some of our ambassadors who are out there acting as spokespersons for the organization. And in my international role, I may then be talking with our team in, in the United States of America and their work on the West and the East Coast. So it, it can vary from day to day and every day is Challenging and every day is usually good fun and I'm usually exhausted, but I have a great team around me. And the important thing is I, I really love to see those guys shine.
0: That's amazing. How long have you been in the organization?
1: Yeah, that's, that's an interesting one. So 1992. So I'm coming up on 30 years. Unfortunately, many of the people who may be listening to this are most probably may not have even been born during that Yeah, I was four yeah. years
0: old. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So it it's a while, do you know it it feels like a long time, but it feels like it's gone really quick as well.
0: Yeah, um, that's a good, that's a good career. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it's incredibly rewar- rewarding. I think when you sit down, and you take stock after a year, despite All the challenges you go well hopefully I've moved the dial slightly on that issue we've progressed this we've achieved this protection for this um, species we've got a a large group of people understanding what needs to be done on a topic and so you can see the progression as you go through even if every day feels different and you're using a huge different set of skill sets to meet different challenges
0: what makes you unqualified for what you're doing? Unless
1: you're training for a vocational or a uh, profession like uh, a physician or you're going mm. into an academic position.
0: This might be a side note that we hopefully do not need. But as Chris just said, there is limitations to just going out there and doing whatever you want and going after it. And that is oh, I don't know, maybe some (laughs) cutting some people open or prescribing medication, anything that has to do with somebody's body, I implore you to please get proper credentials if you are going into those fields or at least talking to other professionals in it to understand uh, ways you can get involved without that, but please don't go cutting people open. Okay.
1: I'm not sure anyone has all the necessary skills to tackle a topic like conservation you need you need to find your way and show that commitment I, i'm not a conservation biologist i haven't trained in political science both sets of skills which i've developed some capabilities over the year i'm hoping if you give me another 30 years maybe i'll get the hang of it but i i think that there's a, a sense of you, you enter this field and there's a huge number of really talented qualified one or apparently qualified wonderful people and I remember my first year attending international conventions and and really mostly listening and then after there was a point where i suddenly realized that i thought actually i've got something to to contribute now and i realized i had been absorbing a huge amount of information and I'd, it was a problem that we needed to solve in a way an international convention was tackling with an issue. And I think I came at it a slightly different direction to those who were already there. And all of a sudden, I felt like I'd stepped through the door and I, I was accepted
0: into that field. The more that you hear from Chris, the more you will realize just how incredibly qualified he actually is for what he's doing and how damn inspirational he is he is an incredible person so just now in in this part of the interview he told me that he can still suffer from imposter syndrome every single day and i was like what Like, is there hope for us? But then I came back and I realized, yes, that is what this is about. We all do just embrace it. Unfortunately, I can't give you the magic way for this to go away, but I can give you tools. And Chris can help with those tools to really battle your imposter monster every single day.
1: You've just got to realize that it is individuals and groups of individuals coming together and at least going for it going to try and make a difference uh, that really makes it so am i qualified now i don't not sure i am i'm Mm. still maybe bluffing my way through sometimes but at the same time seeing successes come i'm realizing you don't have to be perfect at all of this you just have to be good and and continue to strive and keep learning you have to learn every day there's no one time when you can sit back and cruise. This isn't an industry, if we want to call it that, or a career path where people can take up a position and cruise. It just doesn't work that way. You're always going to be on the front edge. And there's a certain amount of of what I call positive stress with that because you're presented with challenges all the time. So, yeah, I'm I'm not sure I was qualified to get in the first place. It was just perseverance that got me Mm -hmm. in. And hopefully I'm continuing to learn every day. I was very lucky to be yeah. amongst a, a group of uh, folks at that time who had that way of thinking and were willing to to listen to this sort of young whippersnapper who came along and started um, <laughs> saying what if we thought about it this way yeah
0: yeah yeah that's it doesn't it takes grit so that's awesome <laughs> okay so you came from a military background and was that before or after university
1: no, it was before university. I went straight from school, did some, got my my exams done at school. I had the opportunity to learn to fly with the Royal Air Force before I left school.
0: Oh wow, that's cool! So
1: <laughs> I I did my private pilot's license when I was uh, on my seventeenth birthday. I qualified on the the first day that I could qualify, and I'd been working at a local aerodrome, refueling aircraft, serving in a bar, I think slightly underage, but I was serving and, and, and um, earning my time in the air at that point. But the Royal Air Force paid for 30 hours at that stage, got you up to a certain level, which was called test and advance. As, as soon as I'd done my last exam, I joined the Royal Air Force. The, the, I'd already signed up and uh, went off, I think about two days later, went off to officer school.
0: Oh, I'm enamored. I'm really obsessed with World War II history, so that's like <laughs> a lot of royal. Of course, it's very cool. Well, we should uh,
1: do another podcast on that, and we could talk about. Oh hours.
0: yeah, I yeah. Part of me wants to write a book about some of Churchill's experience with the King, like his Tuesdays with the King. But I'm especially fond of Churchill, so maybe if this one is successful, I'll yeah. pick that up, <laughs> and you'll be the first on that one too. Well, that's
1: fine. I've got all these volumes of um, the Second World War not far away from here.
0: Oh, amazing. Oh, it's so true. I love World War II history. And if you think a podcast would be really interesting and you're into it too, just, you know, slide into my DMs. I would be very interested to hear your opinion, even though this is my very first actual episode. But you know, we can we can keep dreaming, can't we? But no, I love World War II history, Tuesdays with the King, Churchill met with the King every Tuesday, the King of England. And Churchill himself, being the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom through World War II, would brief the King on the war proceedings. And he did dread them to begin with those Tuesdays with the King, but he learned to love them and they um, began having a really awesome relationship. But okay, back to whales and dolphins. The university then after, what did you study and why did you choose to study?
1: Yeah, when I came out of the Air Force, I didn't... uh, All I knew was I loved being outdoors. I loved all of the exercise. I I was, when I first joined the Air Force, I was described as naturally unathletic. So I had to train very hard at the time to to get up fitness and everything, but I loved it. And so when I came out, I thought I just still want to be outdoors. So I applied for a course in geology and geophysics and went off to study what i felt was like a mixture of science it was there was paleontology there was the the the, the theory of metamorphic rocks hydrology oil and gas um, industry specialities and things i had a great time i had a, had a wonderful time again with a really good bunch of students and because i was slightly older i think i was still able to enjoy the social side of it but also i was committed to getting my degree and i loved it it was a broad spectrum science degree, which has proven really useful later, because I don't think I was trained, again, to think in one way. I was trained, there was mathematics involved, there was uh, chemistry involved, there's biology involved, there's physics involved. So that broader scientific basis has come in really handy since to in my career. So yeah, had a great time at university. Whilst at university I helped set up an organization which there were a lot of small stores around the university and then some big supermarkets were coming in and competing. We set up a, a small group, a design group, and we produced placemats for disposable placemats for advertising the local stores. So when the students were in the cafeteria and eating, they'd be putting their meals down on these plates. I really enjoyed that aspect of just trying to promote the local economy and that led to me when I left university I went off to do a marketing and advertising course so I did a year of that and then thought advertising is the place to be so I went down to London and joined an advertising agency account management with some copywriting and basically threw myself into what was is called here business to business advertising Mm -hmm. so it's companies advertising to companies and the slight difference is it's not so much about brand advertising. It's here are the numbers. How is this affected by sales? Companies are much more specific about that. So I learned a set of skills there, which was about accountability for decisions. And mm-hmm. you could be creative, but you also had to be within the real world. You had to show that what you're doing in spending a, a company's money was actually going to lead to further sales or the development of a, a product area. And again, you had to get under the skin of the product and absolutely understand it mm-hmm. because you're usually talking to people who really do understand it. So it taught me detail, really. It taught me that you had to take the detail and then synthesize it and be able to communicate that to whatever audience you are pitching to. Again, I think a set of skills which prepared me for, yeah. for what came next.
0: Yeah. data back decision-making. Yeah, And it sounds like a little bit of people skills being able to talk to a diverse set of people, which is really important in really any fields. But I feel like in conservation, it has to be a special set because it is sometimes so polarizing for people. It's something that you don't have to care about because it's not in your back door, but. Yeah,
1: no, I I think that's a really good observation.
0: Did you have a moment where you were like, "Uh, this isn't for me and what was the next step?
1: No, it's a really good question because it's absolutely, it was one moment. I've always had an interest in conservation and everything, but I was actually with a client in South London. It was something like 3 a.m. UK time. And back in those days, if you had uh, approved a piece of copy to go into, uh, say, a print ad, if you changed your mind afterwards, we used to charge a nominal amount, which was about £10, $14, $15 at that, Mm. that time. If it had gone to what was called camera ready artwork, we would charge hundred. If you changed it at film stage, it was a thousand pounds. It didn't cost us a thousand pounds to change it. But the idea was to try and get clients to think about getting it right to begin with, as opposed to wanting to change. This guy had changed it 27 times at film stage. So he clocked up 27,000 pounds. And I remember sitting with him in his lounge and I said to him, you realize you're giving us all this money basically because you didn't think about this enough at the first round he said yeah really doesn't matter he he said i buy up i buy up software companies which are developing a product but they just run out of cash but i think it's got potential and he showed me a piece of software at, the, at that time and he said this costs me about 50 pence or 60 70 cents to produce and he said i sell it for 250 pounds close on 300 per unit mm. he said I just make money all the time. And I said to him, yes, but you could have given that money to charity. You could have done something else with that cash. And it hadn't occurred to him. It just wasn't within his psyche that he thought it was, and it was, his money. He could spend it, waste it however he wanted. Whereas I felt it was inefficient for him and his business, but it was also a a terrible indictment of how money was going in a certain direction when actually there were so many other pressing needs around us uh, from everything in homelessness in in London through to the conservation issues that we face. So at that moment, I remember just saying, I want to do something where I feel that I can look back on the year and go, yeah, that was a good year. I feel I did everything I could for that year. Whatever the, whatever the job was, I still wanted to feel fulfilled. The thought of I'm making a huge amount of, helping to make a huge amount of cash for somebody who really doesn't care yeah. because they're just making so much. And I've got nothing against companies making profits and all of that pays for people who then support charities and all that kind of thing. But if you going to do it, do it well, do it really well and then make sure that money is spent well afterwards. So I thought to myself, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go and start volunteering. And so I was volunteering for a group called Environmental Investigation Agency, which were based in London and i worked with a really uh, great team many of whom i still know around the world now on the wild bird import trade coming into europe and i was just a gopher volunteering in the evenings at the weekends Mm -hmm. and would do anything anyone asked and it was while i was there i read a report which was called the war on small cetaceans that eia produced and i just soaked it up absolutely soaked Mm -hmm. it up i'd absorbed it i'd read up as much as i could And all of a sudden, a job was advertised for Welland Dolphin Conservation as a campaign manager. I was in London. This was based in Bath, which is in the southwest of the UK. And I applied. And for some reason, I got an interview. I went down for the interview, and the chap who interviewed me said, Actually, we've decided not to appoint, but I was just interested in your CV. Tell me about what the Air Force was like and all this. So we had this nice conversation. And then for him, the mistake was really just telling me, just keep in touch. I was chatting, there was about six other people in the organization at the time. So I had a chat with them, found out that two o'clock in the afternoon was a sort of, on a Friday, was the kind of transfer of the day where they were starting to think about the week ahead. The fax machines, because it was all fax, no email at that time, would be working hard as information was coming in from around the world. They'd be collating stuff, but basically it was a more casual time on a Friday. So I worked out that two o'clock was most probably the best time to phone. So I phoned every Friday at two o'clock for six months until I drove the guy nuts. And eventually he said, look, I will we'll create a role for you. So it wasn't a campaign, big campaign role. It was a junior researcher role. I gave that's it, I'm going for it. I gave up my career in advertising and quite a a good income at that time to take a two thirds pay cut to go do the role. My girlfriend at the time who is, has, is now my wife was an actress in London. And I said, I know that I'm earning this money in advertising, but by the way, I'm giving it all up and I'm gonna go off to conservation. And thankfully she didn't dump me at the time and she followed, <laughs> I was lucky there. And about four or five weeks after I joined, the guy said, oh, we're going to the International Whaling Commission. It's in the UK this year it's going to be in Glasgow. Do you want to come? So I said, yes, of course. And so I got thrown into my first international fora at that time. And I absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it. That was it. I was on my way.
0: How long were you with the company before that convention? Five weeks, maybe.
1: Oh, (laughs) That's really
0: getting thrown in. That's awesome.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But it, it was in at the deep end.
0: Uh, Mm. Yet
1: it was also amazing in terms of the International Whaling Commission is where all the, the countries that are interested in conservation of whales or interested in the pursuit of whales for commercial whalings, for example, and including Aboriginal subsistence whaling come together and they debate points. What was amazing to me was there was a huge amount of negative energy where... The pro-whaling countries were trying to stop conservation measures going forward in case yeah. it affected their ability. The conservation countries were putting in huge amounts of effort to mitigate the whaling that was taking place yeah. and cut back on what was happening. And you just thought if all this energy was actually going into conservation, it would be incredible. But mm-hmm. you you were effectively maintaining a stalemate, And it was important to maintain and has been because... Without that effort from the conservation-led countries, then the pro-whaling interests would have succeeded at getting commercial whaling back fully and fully legally endorsed years ago. And since then, proactive conservation measures, especially for small cetaceans, orcas, and others, have progressed through the scientific committee and others who are committed to seeing conservation. But it was the cut and thrust of everything. You say Anything, I'd have five weeks, perhaps, but for the later meetings that I attended you would prepare for these and it was a bit it was a bit like I guess the sort of Air Force days as well which is most of the time is very quiet and then there's huge peaks of activity which are Mm. very critical in terms of the decisions you make and you saw this you had ministers and government representatives all coming together having to make decisions often on the spot and you could influence that you could help Drive a, a decision in a certain direction because you have the information. Yeah. And that's what, in, especially in conservation, lots of governments do rely on the nonprofits, the charities, and the foundations that have got this huge amount of expertise to bring that expertise to bear. And so often you're working side by side with government officials yeah. to actually achieve an objective. And that's incredible. That is incredible because they come with a set of skills. We can bring a whole set of other skills and you realize the political nature of a lot of these uh, decisions that get taken are affected by things on the outside, not just what's going on inside. So it's a bit of an eye opener. It's a bit about, it destroys the credibility. I think sometimes that governments have everything under control. I think the last couple of years has shown us that maybe that's, Absolutely not true. And I think it, but it showed you, you could make changes and you can look back and you could go, we did that. It affected that. That was the decision that got taken. And suddenly what you're doing on a day by day basis is suddenly elevated to an international level. And you think at CITES, the convention in trading endangered species, we championed the protection of the bald-nosed dolphin in the Black Sea, where it was being caught and moved out into military facilities, as well as just being exported for display. And Saudis agreed, shouldn't be being exp- exported. There shouldn't be captures taking place. Mm-hmm. And so you then go, because of the team that worked on that and being part of that, there are whales and dolphins alive now, Yep. living in the wild and surviving because of something you did. And that's not a bad feeling. That's not a bad feeling to have.
0: Yeah. The military trained them for sonar. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So A number of militaries had used dolphins in different ways. The Soviet Union, as it was at the time, in the build-up to the breakdown in 89 onwards, had trained dolphins for bases like Sevastopol, which was Ukraine-Russian, and they were capturing dolphins. They'd be trained for two different things. One, we used to patrol the the port where the naval were based, Mm -hmm. others, if they'd detected a diver in the ground they would swim back they'd hit a paddle which would release another dolphin which had a co2 tank on its back and effectively a large hypodermic needle over its shoulder and these were trained to actually hit the diver in the chest and inject the co2 and it would drive the diver to the surface so they were actually used to interdict Divers in the water that may have been laying mines or something. And after the collapse of the Soviet Union, what happened was these, the forces that were looking after the dolphins there weren't getting paid. So these guys were then selling these dolphins left, right, and center to places like Vietnam. You could buy one. If it died, they'd replace it. And suddenly we had dolphins turning up in Dolphinaria who a month before had been in the water being taught to actually attack divers are oh now being used when kids were being put on their backs and this kind of thing we approached the european union at the time and got funding to go in and investigate it and from that investigation we managed to get a a report together which we could take to the convention in trade in endangered species and they basically then put a ban on the export and the movement of those dolphins so shut down that trade
0: thank goodness yeah wow yeah I live in Seattle and there was that really large capture of the killer whales for marine parks and the, yeah. I think it was the sixties and the seventies and the population, while that's not the only indicator or the only issue, the population is still trying to recover. We're at like 73 members of three pods that used to be in the thousands. It's just so sad what people do to yeah. these amazing animals. So according to the Seattle Times, by 1976, there were about 270 orcas captured in the Salish Sea, which is the transboundary waters between the U.S. and Canada for marine parks and other uses. But at the time, the populations were pretty hefty, and as Chris will get into a little bit more, even taking out certain members when you think that population is huge and you can pluck out a certain number and they'll be fine. It's just not the case. And here now in Seattle, where I live, the Southern Resident Killer whales are our resident orcas. And they are down to just 73 members as of this recording. There are three pregnant females of the three pods. So the three pods of the J, K, and L pods, but 73 members is heartbreakingly low. We also have the transient or the bigs, whales, killer whales in the area, and the big distinction between the southern resident whales and the transient whales is the transients will eat seals and other pinnipeds, and the resident whales eat salmon, and lo and behold, the salmon are also endangered here. So there's a lot of efforts for salmon habitat restoration and dam removal pushes in the area to try to help those numbers rebound to feed the whales. But just a little tidbit, and there's lots you can do to get involved for helping the Southern Resident Killer whales because they do need a lot of help. And quick plug, a friend of mine, Maria, and I, we host beach cleanups every month here in the Seattle area. We go to a different beach and we gather a group of people and we clean up the beach. We weigh them, we um, celebrate all of the trash we pick up, but you can find us at beach, please clean up on Instagram. So that's at beach, please clean up on Instagram and give us a follow. And please, if you're in the Seattle area, I would love if you would join us and that's just a little bit of a contribution we can do to give back to these whales and the salmon that so desperately need our help
1: and and just before that unfortunately orcas were often used for target practice by oh. air force planes and navy planes Gosh, there, there's a recorded incidents where they've been machine gunned and things yes and i think what people didn't realize at the time but we do now know through the study and starting to understand about cultural and social complexity in these cute, very intelligent matriarchal societies okay. is those captures ripped out huge amounts of cultural capital out of that those groups. We recognize now that if you do that and say you take some senior females or even younger females out of that, it has a long-term effect on the survivability of the population. And so th- the old days where people would talk about, there's a stock of whales in the same way as they talk about fish stocks, it was a, a reductionist way of making life simple. Because yeah. if you talked about there's 20,000 X, maybe, orca in a certain area, it doesn't matter if we take 40 or 50. Actually, it doesn't work that way. Now we know that there are multiple types of orca, from transients to residents. Yeah. We now know that there are cultural groups. We now know that pods, when they meet, are making sure that the young aren't reproducing until they get to a certain age, because like human beings, they have to grow up and learn socialization. So what did we rob from that population back in the 60s and 70s that the population now is paying the price?
0: I will never fully know, but we have ideas because the ecosystem collapsed and it's still collapsing in ways. And it's just trying to get its bearings. And now the salmon population is endangered. So it's a whole, it's an ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah, And I think people didn't realize that fast enough, but I'm glad that they're starting to, especially a dolphin safe tuna and all of that. But the, so it does sound like a lot of the skills that you are using now. And then you used when you first started into conservation are, pretty hefty into what you developed through the military and what you developed through studying geology. And can you, do you like pinpoint certain skills that you're like, Oh, this really helped me because I learned it this way.
1: Yeah. I I think being willing to be tenacious without being dogmatic about something, being able to continue on a problem. And because we've been involved with long-term studies, whales and dolphins around the world, some of these 25, 30 years long, in terms of long-term, you you realize it does take a while to get information out and then crystallize that information. I think, I I, I said before, I think in advertising, one of the skill sets was how do you synthesize quite a complex amount of information to to an audience? So, for example, if you want to talk to a minister or a government, a state official or whatever in terms of an issue, you really have to synthesize it down to a very small number of points, not because these guys aren't smart, But you may have an official and she is just working all hours on a whole range of problems. You really have to get the messaging pinpointed for her so that she has the information. Then she can use that to leverage a decision that she needs to take or someone else needs to take. Those skill sets you do refine over time, but could come from anywhere. A student that learns how to do an essay in a certain way, if they're taught well, I think can... To translate those skills across I think it's, it's also about not having a sort of steady state mind thinking about being willing to step out of the normative way of thinking about an issue and try and approach it from a different direction be creative about that and I know that sounds as maybe slightly your way people might describe lots and lots of professionals, which is true but we find I, and I find now we have to solve lots of different types of problems, complex and complicated problems and multiple variables, but also difficult to be able mm-hmm. to put those together. Um, and the real secret I found with my team and the whole team across this area is have a really clear idea about where you're trying to get to. Because yeah. you can work in this as you can work in lots of fields where you can be busy and you can believe that you're doing good but actually if you have a clear idea about what it is you want to achieve and then work backwards from there work out the what do you think the pathways are what would be the logical pathway now give me another scenario which is completely different so you have three or four ways of thinking about attacking a problem and have those in your back pocket even when you're pursuing a strategy so that sort of non, non-steady non state thinking A follows B follows follows C, it would be wonderful if everything worked that way, but it doesn't. The only way it works is if you say, yep, this is clearly, I understand what I want to achieve and start to then understand the stakeholders and the variables around that. And I, I think if you apply that to almost anything in life, having a clear direction for yourself, then you can be busy. Then you can put all that energy into it. And if you don't make it that first time, then think about the different angles to attack it and persevere at that. And don't think just because you don't make it that you can't make it next time or the next time you attack the problem.
0: Just keep your North Star in mind. Don't let the setbacks really set you back.
1: Yeah, and make sure that North Star is really far out. The, the Air Force mm-hmm. have a here have a, a motto, which is through struggle to the stars. And it's about noting that you're gonna have to work But make sure that old adage, you shoot for the stars and you'll make it to the moon kind of thing.
0: Let's recap really quick to really drive this home. So we've covered quite a bit here, but a couple of things to really note in terms of you want to get into conservation. You don't come from a background of biology or you don't come from a background of science at all. You don't come from a background of research There are ways, so transferable skills, that's very important. Transferable skills, cannot hammer that enough. You have them, we all have them. You probably have to work with data in some capacity. You probably have to understand and synthesize very important, probably very complex information and provide that to other people to get a point across. You might have to collaborate with other people Maybe you have to collaborate with clients. Maybe you have to collaborate with other coworkers, but either way, there's other stakeholders involved in what you're doing. It's probably not a one person team. So skills, they come in all different forms and you can absolutely use those skills that you build and develop them in different ways. But get in the door with the skills that you have now and then just develop through volunteering developed through taking courses on your own. There's free courses that you can take online. You can take classes from really prestigious universities online for free as well. You can take classes in your local area if you want to, I don't know, maybe learn SQL. You could probably find somebody to teach you. Just get out there, figure out exactly what it is that you want to do with your North Star and start to put the pieces together and in place to get the the gears going and get everything just running. And then once you hit the ground running, you will start to understand, oh, okay, we can talk to this person and this person, and this is probably a skill. Maybe I should learn, I don't know, how to repair an engine. Like who that goes out on a boat actually knows the ins and outs of an engine so that could go on your resume as a really cool skill that you have that maybe another person on that team does not. So look for ways, there's always ways and just keep your North Star in mind, and please just don't give up. Tenacity might be one of the most important parts of life in general, but tenacity is very important for going after what you want. Don't take no for an answer. Figure out a way. Chris bothered the the conservation company for six months before they gave him a job, and now he's been there over 30 years. So tenacity, skill sets, transferable skills, just do it, and I believe in you so much.
1: We have ambitions in the organization. We wrote a treatise once, which was, we said, New York Times 100 years from now. And we wrote an editorial saying, if we were the New York Times, what would we want it to be saying about conservation of cetaceans? Populations Mm -hmm. recovered. The United Nations had decided this. The U.S. had taken this position, which had led to that. And we used it to map out a vision. Now, not everything has followed that sort of, That vision in terms of where we've got to on things, but it gave us all a sense of, yeah, that's the world that we want to create. And we can do our small part to help create that. So have the target, but make sure it's ambitious. Yeah, And then don't punish yourself when you fall short on it, but work out how you're going to come at it again. So learn from those mistakes and move forward.
0: That's a great segue into something else I'm very curious about, and it's your setbacks. What are maybe even the the top one or two that you had to face and really overcome on your journey? Yeah, so
1: in conservation, you mean?
0: In conservation. Yeah,
1: we years ago, we tried with the Faroe Islands to try different ways to try and persuade the, the folks there to stop killing. Oh, that's dolphins. the slaughter yeah yeah the pharaohs fur- sit between Iceland and the uk and there's been a, a long-term kill of pilot whales there but there's also other species and in fact in September this year we had the kill of 1428 dolphins and that's
0: the most uh, right since it's, it's the started, most yeah. uh,
1: since about 1953 and oh my gosh it was completely it's been criticized hugely within the pharaohs
0: If you are on any form of social media, you've probably heard about the Faroe Island dolphin slaughter of over 1,400 dolphins, as Chris mentioned. If you are appalled by it, like a lot of people are, like I am, there is a petition going around from Only One, that's Only.One, their website, and it is to stop the slaughter altogether, to petition to just not do it anymore. So there's more information there, and Chris will talk a little bit about it as well, but a resource if you would like it.
1: They were using an, an old-fashioned knife to cut the, 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 the dolphins at the back of the neck, they were there were young calves right next door to the mothers that were being killed. It took hours. There weren't enough people. It was just atrocious. It was a terrible, cruel thing. In the same way as it, it we talked about culture before, mm-hmm. the fairies defend it on the grounds that we kill all of the dolphins in a pod because that's better than leaving a few to go on and suffer. Actually, we don't know again what culture and learning has been taken out mm-hmm. of the population of Atlantic white-sided dolphins. Luckily, the outrage at it, at this has led to the Faroese now doing a review of the dolphin kills. And a majority of the Faroese people have actually said, we shouldn't be killing dolphins. Whales are a different matter for them, but dolphins, they, they have said, it's, it's no longer worth it. We don't need the meat so much. We don't need the meat. But they feel strongly about defending the pilot whale hunt, but dolphins, they're more relaxed. About must have been 20 years ago, we tried everything and we, we ended up running a boycott. And it was the first boycott that we ever ran. And we joined forces with another group, a series of group of organizations. We damaged the fisheries industry significantly in terms of blocking markets for them. What we hadn't analyzed was that the sense of identity with the hunt that the government would use to, to describe this is not an attack on the hunt, it's an attack on the fairies themselves. And so they the support for the hunt went up in yeah. the fairies. And so we realized that actually that kind of tactic just doesn't work. And that was a huge setback because, hate to say it, but maybe the hunt has gone on for longer because we helped and others helped reinforce that sense the of- culture, yeah. Yeah, and a sense of national identity where it, The Fairies have amazing poetry, and and one of their great poets talks about that this is the last vestige of their Viking ancestry. Because they've got a really high standard of living, because they're driving their 4x4s, because they have a good income as a country, their their Mm -hmm. per capita income is incredibly high. They have their satellite TV, they have what most people have. The distance between that and where they were a hundred years ago, as it's a huge advance in terms of standards of living. This is one of the last things they have where I actually think it's machismo. It's kind of men can prove that they're men. In, in, in the regulations, it used to ban women from being on the foreshore. Priests were never allowed to be there because it was such a bloody act and that there was such violence. And it, it's ingrained into that national sense of identity. We took the lessons we applied there, and then when we were campaigning in places like Iceland against the commercial whaling there, what we did was we said, this isn't against Icelanders, it's against those within the country that are supporting and driving the whaling forward. So in this case, Christian Lofsson, who is the major owner of the Havul whaling fleet that were taking fin whales. And in fact, it's his, I think his niece who heads up the Minky whalers there. So it's a very Mm. small group of people. Who were benefiting. And so the idea was we would separate out the criticism and allow Icelanders to decouple away from the concept of whaling as being Icelandic. Yeah. And whaling was pursued by this chap who happens to be a multimillionaire. So it's from the adversity of of what was really a terrible loss in terms of that boycott, we learned some new skills and, and knowledge that we could apply. And we're doing the same in places like Japan now. That sense of nationalism and that sense of identity with the coastal whaling and the big fleet whaling was ingrained all the way through. The Secretary General of the Liberal Democratic Party, he represents Taiji, that's his constituency. And so you had these senior folk who had family ties and familial ties to the sense of nationalism, and they wanted to define that as Japan. Yeah. Uh, a bunch, as well as a bunch of other issues in terms of maybe revising history in certain respects. We have been trying to separate that out. So working with women's groups in Japan who have been looking at the issue of contaminants in whale meat and yeah. thinking about it from a food security point of view, not about we need to kill whales because we need to feed ourselves, but actually are these whales and dolphins actually poisoning us in the way that they're being caught? Dolphin meat mixed with whale meat and things. And it's setting up that dynamic, which is politically, you can claim that whaling is Japanese. But increasingly for Japanese people, whaling is just an industry and doesn't shouldn't be defining them as individuals or as a group. And that allows the platform then for Japanese to become critical of it themselves and allows the growth of um, civil society nonprofits who can take this issue forward within Japan. So all that stems from that major faux pas, really, in the way we try to tackle the Faroese issue. Um, Sorry, that was one. But (laughs) you can see that it's had quite significant repercussions.
0: yeah, Yeah. So I asked Chris if whale and dolphin conservation ever comes at these situations as... These whales and these dolphins, they are sentient beings. They are incredibly intelligent, and they deserve to have autonomy. They deserve to live their lives without human involvement, and they deserve to live their lives without being a means to an end for humans. And he had some really insightful things to say about that. Yeah. Yeah,
1: absolutely. We have our programs where we work on bycatch, entanglements, and, and whales and dolphins getting caught in nets. We have a position on the captivity issue, which is opposed to the captive display of cetaceans. Mm. We have a program which looks at healthy seas, plastic pollutions. How do you create marine protected areas? How do you create the science that allows countries to develop that those techniques? And we have our anti-whaling work. But underpinning that are two programs of work and they are our philosophical positioning. Mm. One is what's called the green whale program, which looks at the ecological services, why we value the services that whale provide us like absorbing carbon dioxide and yeah. acting as a huge sink for carbon.
0: Oh man. If you do not know anything about whales taking in and harboring CO2, Literally for their whole lives and beyond, please Google it and just go down the rabbit hole, go down into the Marianas Trench of whale COT holding. It's incredible.
1: The other side is about culture and individuals. And this has been looking at the science of why individuals count. And that is about the Mm. intrinsic value of Mm -hmm. whales and dolphins as sentient, remarkable creatures in their own. And I always say, whales and dolphins are, they're really similar to human beings and they are amazingly different. We've learned to manipulate the world. My my phone has been created because we can extract things from the ground. We can put things together in certain ways. We can conceptualize technology. Whales and dolphins have not had to do that. They've worked out how to live in their environment, live in groups. And we now know, you know, that, more and more species we're finding out have signature whistles which are not just about uh, ha- this is william over here and this is bert over here and ernie's over here it's uh, sorry going back to the muppets now <laughs> move over rover and let jim
0: henson take over
1: The dolphin called William, if others are talking about that dolphin or referring to that dolphin, they may use a signature whistle for William. When he's using signature whistle, he might be using the signature whistle contracted in a certain way to say Bill. Mm -hmm. So he's basically saying, you can't see me, but this is Bill speaking. Whereas when others are referring, they use the signature. So we're beginning to understand that there is a a real sense of self-identification in these guys. And if that's the case, what else is going on? Years ago, people were trying to teach dolphins to speak English or other human languages. Mm -hmm. Turns out their social skills, the way they interact, the way they touch, the way they communicate over long distances, may be a hugely much more complex language and a way of communicating than we can ever understand. Can dolphins, for example, they use sonar all the time? Are they able to transmit the image of a shark that they get back rebounded can they project that to another to another years ago we would to call that esp now we know that information may be flowing yeah. uh, in that kind of transmission that's huge for us to conceptualize but the remarkable thing about that is we suddenly realize human beings aren't the center of the universe we've defined conservation for a long time as how do we protect the environment so that humans can do for our
0: benefit yeah
1: actually if we start thinking about other species as having an inherent right to to life as much as we do i think we come up with better solutions we come up with more creative solutions because As we talked about in terms of solving problems within conservation anyway, or anything, you start looking at it from a different angle. So we have a series of exercises where we talk about think think like a whale, think how the whale would be thinking about this problem. I love that. And it's a completely different thing for the way we would. We have a a great colleague called Philippa Brakes who's from the UK, but is based in New Zealand. She's just finished her PhD uh, looking at culture and social transmission. And she's been developing the mathematics to be able to then turn that into real conservation policy. Because we now know bottlenose dolphins off the Scottish coast here in the UK, there may be 450 of them, but there may be three or four really important females. And if we lose two of those, because before we might've said, yes, we can lose 1.8% of the population under a PDR or whatever, potential biological removal. But actually if it's those two out of the four, we might have, as we talked about the population of orcas before off off the West Coast, we could be removing a crucial amount of knowledge, cultural information, which is essential for that group to survive into the future. So the more work we do in this area, and we said value whales for, for the services they provide, but also value them as individuals, and then translate that into hard conservation. And the hard conservation... Every time we're running the numbers now, you can't afford to lose one of them. You just can't. Therefore, you have to protect them all. It's no good now saying, yeah, we can have this many dying by catch or yes, you can afford to whale and kill this many. Turns it's out- It's more you can't.
0: complex than that.
1: It's much more complex.
0: Yeah. yeah. And very selfishly, I love the idea of studying the matriarchal society. Like these babies, they have this incredible connection with their mothers and they live with them sometimes for their whole lives. Yeah. And the mothers and the grandmas, they are what makes everything work. And so yeah. I'm like, what we could learn from that <laughs> in like all Absolutely. of society?
1: I think if we look at governments where women have actually got to positions of significant power,
0: yeah.
1: um, they tend to solve problems in different ways yeah. and it's less confrontational It's most probably more well thought out and intellectual. It's less spur of the... I think blokes sometimes when they get to these positions feel they have to be doing the the silverback gorilla stuff and beating the chest. When actually all the work's going on behind somewhere. If you look at Iceland now, they haven't... Commercially whale for two years. The prime minister there doesn't come from a whaling background, doesn't come from a fisheries background, but has allowed the country to start to say, we need to think about this in a different way. Whaling is really important to our past, but maybe it doesn't have to be part of our future. Yeah, I think men sometimes fall into the trap of feeling that power means you have to be dominating the agenda. And of course, there's great male leaders, female leaders. But yeah, if we look at whales and dolphins, I think they've got this sussed.
0: Yeah, they do. I mean, their communication is more intricate than ours. It's so much. Yeah. How they run their whole lives. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The last question, we've covered a lot of this though, in like little bits and pieces, but if you could, I guess, wrap it up in terms of these two nuggets or these three nuggets are things that I really want people to know in terms of pursuing conservation.
1: The hurdles may be look huge but don't be put off from giving it a go if you decided that you pursued one through through the academic background that you've gone or the path that you've pursued don't ever be put off from thinking that you can help make a difference and then into that take ambition not such not so much as like I never intended to become the chief exec I was just it was circumstances that led to that but ambition in terms of I want to make this significant change, as we talked about before, aim for the stars and, you know, and get as far as you can that way. So if you're mission orientated, if you if your mission is about protecting habitats, protecting the environment, the watercourses, be it be it a group of whales and dolphins, be it be it gorillas in Africa or whatever it would be mountain lions. Have a vision of what that should be like, what would be the ultimate prize in terms of there, And then you never will suffer for second base. You just will always be completing the diamond and you will accomplish amazing things. You will accomplish amazing things. And there are so that, that's my two and be willing to listen to others around you. I'm going to add a third. And never, ever patronize them for the background that they come from. Never assume that you have become the expert, because we have students who come in and work with us, and one of them will say something, and we would just... It's like a door, and the lights come in, because we've just never thought about it in that way. So as you move through the greasy pole, up the greasy pole, (laughs) remember the folks who are coming behind and remember that you were there once.
0: Yeah, I love that. I I listened to this podcast, Ologies. I don't know if you're familiar, but it's quite amazing. She interviews ologists of all different kinds. And one of her favorite sayings of mine is, ask smart people dumb questions and just never stop. Never stop asking smart people dumb questions, no matter how smart you actually are. Yeah. Oh, Allie Ward with one L. Dad Ward, I am such a huge fan, and I know this is probably the creepiest of the crop, but I would love to just meet you, pick your brain. I am brand new to podcasting, very obviously. For the listeners, if you don't listen to ologies, it's amazing. So Allie Ward invites ologists of all different kinds on her podcast, and they talk about their respective ology so please give it a listen and Ellie Ward or anybody that has direct contact with Ellie Ward, if you're listening to this, thank you. Thank you for the gift that is Ologies.
1: Absolutely. Because as I think I said in the opening few minutes, if I do this for another 30 years, maybe I'll be getting a handle on it.
0: <laughs> but you,
1: you are always learning and yeah. you you should be open to learn from anywhere and everyone. And then you will will be able to do the best you can.
0: And that's all we can do
1: <laughs> that's all we can hope to do yeah
0: chris what makes you qualified for what you're doing
1: i don't think i'm still qualified for what i, I think because i brought those though, i try to live up to those values and i recognize yeah. i fail as much as i succeed in terms of anything is i think i'm somebody who absolutely values the team around me mm-hmm. and the people we work with mm-hmm. and be that a volunteer or be one of our really high specialists who who have refined and refined their knowledge. And my pleasure comes from not being the person who's always having to be out there doing X, Y, and Z, but seeing other people achieve that. It is just one of the most satisfying things, seeing people excel in their field and excel in what they do. And the moment you can start to take, feel, feel self-satisfaction from other people's success, you realize this isn't all down to you. It's down to a whole group. The pressure and the stress is shared. You mm-hmm. don't have to, you don't have to take on the whole world yourself. Mm-hmm. And you also realize that, again, it's not you being the center of anything. It's always a collective effort and again that the breakthrough can come from anywhere and so for me it's the real pleasure of seeing other people um excel in what they do and do the best they can and it's just it's one of the it's one of the most satisfying feelings in all of this we've had some exceptional people at wdc some have gone on to work in other organizations and i'm still incredibly proud of them in what they're doing
0: thank you so much again for just enlightening us with all of your knowledge and your passion. It just, it glows and it's really amazing.
1: It's been a lovely, it's been great to talk.
0: Oh yeah, this is going to be an amazing first episode. I'm just giddy. <laughs> yeah.
1: Good luck with the rest of it as well. Thank you. All right, take care.
0: Bye. All right. Welcome to the end of the episode. You made it. Thank you so much for listening. And as my gift to you for making it to the end, I'm gonna just give you a little tidbit of trivia. So all dolphins are whales, but not all whales are dolphins. So dolphins are toothed whales. And there's also baleen whales that have those really thin like teeth things that act as a filter for all the really tiny fish that they eat. And that is uh, humpback. Humpback have those teeth as an example, do some trivia and lay it on them, surprise them. But I really, really appreciate you listening. Please get in touch with me. If you know of anybody you think would be a great addition to this podcast, I can be reached at ynqpod at gmail.com. That's Y-N as in Nancy, Q-Pod at gmail.com also have a website, and that is you're not yourenotqualifiedpodcast.com. I'll also have an Instagram that I will link. This is my very first episode, so I'm going to be launching it very soon, just a couple of days here, so obviously recorded earlier, but I'll link that Instagram as well on this episode so you could find me there, but thank you so much. I cannot stress enough how important it is to me that I can reach people and I just want to light a spark and everybody, I want them to pursue their dreams. And if you feel connected to this at all, I really want to hear from you and uh, let me know how this podcast can better serve you or people that, you know, people in your family. And let's just, let's just grow this movement together. We all can just chase all of our dreams and nobody can tell us that we can't to hell with them. All right. I can't wait to see you guys later. And remember every Thursday, go out there and do that thing. Bye.